Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hey there! Do you not have a quote for us? Not today. Okay. No, I, I, I've i been occasionally throwing in random quotes from various movies I like, but I didn't think of anything today. I could have. I guess I could say, uh, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> so there we go. All right, then. I'm happy with that. Now let's tackle our subject, which is how fuel cells work. Ah, uh, fuel cells, the mystery uh, energy problem saver of the future. Or sort of, we would we would hope anyway. Uh, yeah, fuel cells are this. Uh, well, it's it's kind of like a battery. Uh, you know, we, let's let's go ahead and kind of define what it is. It's an well, electrochemical energy conversion device. Yes, actually, that's that's sort of what I meant about mystery because everybody talks about how cool they are, but nobody really knows exactly what they do. But they convert chemicals into electricity. That's right. like a battery. Yeah, no, it is very much like a battery. Uh, there's, there are some differences, which we'll get into. But in general, a fuel cell, what most people tend to know about fuel cells is, one, they create electricity, and two, their byproducts are heat and water. 
Yes. That uh, tends to be what most people know about, apart from the people who specifically work in the fuel cell industry. Clearly, they know a lot more than that. Well, of course, we always see that mainstream media, uh, you know, reporter going out to the back of the uh, fuel cell vehicle and putting a cup underneath the tailpipe and drinking the water. Right. You yeah. Know, and I, that, I think that sticks with us. That's why we don't we don't know that much more about it because we go, huh, that's really cool. Yeah, because because you, you think about that, out. you're like, well, if we have this energy source that can create electricity, and the only byproduct really is heat and water, and you know, we, water's not toxic. It's not like water's going to be throwing out uh, uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere or polluting in some other way. Why don't we have more of these? And really, the answer to that question is that the technology is not sophisticated enough and reliable enough, and most importantly, really, when you get down to it, cheap enough to do on a widespread basis to allow us to, to switch to a fuel cell economy. So let's let's kind of talk about what how a fuel cell works, what it does, where it came from. Okay. Um, uh, first of all, well, let's talk about Sir William Grove. Okay. Now, Sir William Grove, he's the fellow who kind of invented fuel cells, if you will. Mm-hmm. All right. He knew, this was back in 1839, by the way, he knew that if you, if you uh, took some water and you ran an electric current through the water, it would produce hydrogen and oxygen. Right. It's so, splitting the molecules of water apart. Yeah. It's called electrolysis. And actually, this, this tends to happen with various molecules. If you add enough energy to the molecule, it tends to break the molecular bonds, and it will eventually break apart into its individual elements. Mm-hmm. Um, most molecules will do this if you... If you pour in enough energy, right. that's going to be another important point later on. Mm-hmm. So Grove, he theorized, well, if you if you add electricity to water and you get hydrogen and oxygen, uh, if, you, if you then combined hydrogen and oxygen, you should get water and electricity. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know it should be the same coming out as it is going in, right? That makes sense. So if you're, yeah, so he's like, well. Um, how l- l- he ran some experiments and he created what he called a gas voltaic battery. Okay. And in this gas voltaic battery, he then combined hydrogen and oxygen and he realized that he got water and he got free electrons, which, you know, if you direct free electrons through a path, that's electricity. Mm-hmm. So. There was it, a sign, a little sign on the side that said, electrons, free. Yeah. Like, yeah, wow. exactly. There was a protest held outside <laughs> the cell. <laughs> what a deal. Fifty years later, you, you get uh, uh, Ludwig Mond and Charles Langer. Yeah. And they're, they're the ones who coined the term fuel cell. Mm. Those are the guys who actually found a, a fairly practical way to, to do this uh, that was – Easily repeatable, so you could you could repeat the experiment and prove yes something is happening here. Because of course we know in science, just because you get a result doesn't necessarily mean that you have proven your hypothesis correct. You need to have a repeatable experiment that can be done by anyone right. who has the the facility to do it at any rate um, to prove that that something really is going on. Yes. So that's where we get into the fuel cells, and unlike a battery, like a battery is a self contained chemical reaction uh, in a can. In a, yeah, it's a chemical reaction in a can. Very good. Yeah, and, well, I mean, nothing's going in. Nothing's going out except electrons. Right. Yeah, Yeah. the battery has chemicals inside it that react together. The reaction produces electrons, and that is where we get you know our little electric power from a battery. Yes. Fuel cells are a little different. Uh, you can pour fuel into a fuel cell, thus the name, and it will 
convert that fuel into the water and the electricity. So as long as you have a supply of hydrogen and a supply of oxygen going into the fuel cell, mm-hmm. and as long as the membrane of the fuel cell uh, and the other components remain remain viable, and we'll get into that in a little bit, uh, it should continue to to produce electricity. It's not gonna. It's not like it'll die after all the hydrogen runs out. If you add more hydrogen and more oxygen, it should continue to work. Right. Okay. So we've covered the basics there. Uh, let's let's talk. I'm going to shift my notes around. I actually have paper notes today. Wow. I usually don't do this. Uh, let's talk about the various components within a fuel cell. Okay. We can do that. All right. We've got the anode. Yes. Uh, the anode, that's the, that's the negative post. Uh, not so meaning that it, yeah, I was trying to trying to, <laughs> trying to avert that joke. Listeners, I apologize. Right, I, I was not fast I didn't fast finish. Enough. I mean, I, we all suffered for that. Besides okay. Chris, um, no, 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 it was good. So that's what's conducting the electrons and uh, that that get freed from the hydrogen. Mm-hmm. So the anode's on one end. Uh, on the other end is the cathode. Yes, it's the positive post. Mm-hmm. So that's where the the hydrogen. Uh, 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 this, this is what's conducting the electrons back from the external circuit. So I'm sorry. We got we got the anode. That's where when the electrons come out from the uh, reaction, the electrons go to the anode, go into a, a circuit. So whatever, you know, electric motor or a light bulb or whatever. Right. right. Um, the electrons continue their path once they go through that circuit to the cathode. Uh, then we've got the electrolyte uh, in the center. This is a, a usually a, pro- a proton exchange membrane. Mm-hmm. Uh, thing of the membrane is kind of like a force field. Now, this force field Ooh. will, yeah, the force field will allow positively charged ions to pass through, but will repel negatively charged uh, particles. So electrons have a negative charge. Yes. They cannot pass through the membrane. Yes. If they could pass through the membrane, fuel cells would not work. It is the bouncer of the fuel cell. Yes. You may not come in. But, you are not cool enough because you are negative. Exactly. But the close enough. So the <laughs> so the hy- hydrogen are the the hydrogen ions are positively charged because mm-hmm. they have given up an electron. Right. All right. So exactly. now now essentially what you have a, a hydrogen ion is essentially a proton. Mm-hmm. So you've got a proton. Protons are positively charged. You've got this positively charged element there. It can pass through the membrane. Now why would it pass through the membrane? To get to the other side. But what's on the other side? <laughs> you mean what's on the other oxygen. side? Oxygen. Oh, yes. And oxygen has a negative charge. The, right. It, it, so They're attracted why, to one another. Exactly. The proton is attracted across the membrane to the negatively charged oxygen. If, if there were no negative charge, then the proton would not necessarily migrate through the membrane. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, when it migrates to the membrane, it then combines with the oxygen, and uh, uh, you get the the two hydrogens, the one oxygen together, and then the electron that had passed through the circuit. Remember, it passed from the anode through the circuit right. into the cathode. Right. On that end, the two hydrogen atoms, the oxygen atom, have combined into a molecule. The electron joins that molecule, and that's when you get water. Right. So you don't have any free electrons at the end of this process. It all recombines on the cathode end, and that's where you get the water. Uh, there's one other element that's important with this, and that's the catalyst. Yes. And uh, this is catalysts. What they do is they help reactions. 
Right. The, the thing that makes it possible to react. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, you would have to pour even more energy in in order for this to, to react, and it wouldn't be viable at all. So it's a special material, and it, it helps this reaction of oxygen and hydrogen. And in most fuel cells that you that, that people talk about, it tends to be made out of platinum nanoparticles. Right. So a nanoparticle, of course, is insanely tiny, like tinier than the microscopic scale. Right. But it is on a thin sheet. Of materials, so yes. it, um, with uh, as much area as exposed as possible to facilitate more reaction. Right. So it's almost like you've spray painted a sheet with platinum. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- yeah, as you can imagine, that's pretty expensive. Yeah. Platinum is a precious metal. It's pretty rare. It's hard to get your hands on it. Even when you're talking about nanoparticles, which are really tiny, you're talking about billions of nanoparticles. Yes. Like a nanoparticle is not going to do much for you. Um, so, yeah, you definitely want to maximize that surface area in order to to allow the reactions between hydrogen and oxygen to, to happen, mm-hmm. or else your, your fuel cell doesn't do anything. All right, so you're pouring hydrogen in, you're, you're pumping oxygen in. When I say pouring, I'm, I really mean pumping, because you're probably pumping hydrogen gas. You're pumping both into this fuel cell. They combine, you get the electrons, you get the water. So... Why don't we have lots and lots of fuel cells already running all the, all of our power, all of our electronics? You've already hit on it. Why is that? What was that? The, the biggest one being the cost. It's, that would be a huge one. Yeah, the platinum. That kind of. <laughs> it's simply not. It's simply not practical. Right. Yeah. You get down to it. You're like, well, in a in an ideal world, mm-hmm. we cost would not be would not even be a consideration, right? right? We would just be talking about the fact that this is clean energy mm-hmm. that we have and uh, and we could run our cars or other devices, our homes even, powered plants. We could run them on hydrogen and uh, and then we'd, we'd not pollute and we'd have a nice clean energy source, but it comes down to the fact that cost is an element. Uh, it's not the only one either. No. Of course, uh, yeah, the, uh, the whole process of, of splitting the water into two pieces. Yeah. It, is, uh, well, that, you know, that's, well, actually, is, I guess should be the source of hydrogen more than anything else. Yeah. Source of hydrogen is a huge, huge problem. Hydrogen it's, does not... It's plentiful. But not in its elemental form. Right. On Earth. It's usually combined with something else, like oxygen, to make mm-hmm. water. Uh, we, we, it's not like there's a hydrogen mine we can go to and mine hydrogen, pure hydrogen, and use that. We, when we, we can get hydrogen from stuff. Yes. Like hydrocarbon fuels or even water, as we pointed out. By breaking down compounds. Right. Which takes energy. Right. So in order to get this fuel cell fuel, you already have to expend energy to create the fuel. So right. now you're now you're looking at a fuel like an energy deficit situation. Does it take more energy to create the fuel than the energy you will get by using that fuel to power a fuel cell? Right. And as long as it takes more energy for you to create the fuel than it does to actually power whatever it is you're going to power, it doesn't make sense. We already have a fuel that does this, by the way. Mm-hmm. Gasoline. Yes. Gasoline actually it actually takes more energy to create a gallon of gas than a gallon of gas can create through putting it through a motor or whatever. Yeah, because uh, gasoline is a pretty inefficient fuel. 
yeah. as it turns out, especially uh, compared to a fuel cell. And and you have to again look at the entire life cycle. You're not just looking at oh well how much how much energy did it take to ship the gasoline from the refinery mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the uh, to the gas station. It's also how much energy did the refinery have to expend in order to produce that gasoline? How much right. energy had to be expended to to get the oil out of the ground to eventually become what would what would eventually become gasoline? Right. Um, it's a really a big picture thing, and that's that's the real problem with a lot of these energy issues. Is that once you start looking at the big picture, you begin to realize, oh, this is this is a much more difficult problem than I originally imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are many different kinds of fuel cells. Yeah, I thought I thought we were. Uh Getting ready to hit that because the one that we've been talking about, uh, I guess probably without actually saying its name, is the uh, polymer electrolyte membrane fuel cell. Right. Also, sometimes it's called the polymer exchange membrane fuel cell. Um, but same Gee, thing. Why? <laughs> yeah. The membrane in the exchange. Okay, I got it. Yep, that's it. Um, but so, they're used in cars a lot. Right. Yeah. That, that's kind of the stuff we're looking at. at cars. See, now some of these fuel cells work really well at a certain temperature range. And outside that temperature range, they don't work very well at all. Mm-hmm. Now, the polymer exchange has a couple of different issues that, that make it not the most ideal method of, of uh, power generation within a car. And, I'll, mm-hmm. and one of those is that, um, well, I mean, it, it, its heat range is okay because it, it works best somewhere around uh, oh, 140 to 176 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. So you could – you would first have to heat your fuel cell up to this temperature for it to be able to to work properly. Mm-hmm. So there there is a warm up period. It's not like it's going to work immediately as you get in your car. Mm-hmm. One of the things about the polymer exchange membrane fuel cell is that it has to have a hydrated membrane. The membrane must remain hydrated. Right. Which means essentially wet. Right. All right. So if you live in Minnesota, you know the winters in Minnesota get really cold. And when you get really cold and you got water, you know what happens. It freezes. Yeah. It doesn't happen much here in Atlanta, but up in Minnesota. Well, it um, could, though. It could, yes. It, if the temperature fell far enough, the water used to hydrate that membrane. And remember, the membrane is key to this uh, to this exchange. If the, the water could freeze, that would make the membrane extremely brittle and it could break. And then you've got a broken fuel cell. Right. So that seems problematic. Yeah, that's a bit of an issue. And there are other types of fuel cells. Uh, there's the the solid oxide fuel cell. Yeah, this is this is one of my favorites. This would not work well in a car. No, no, not at all. Um, simply because <laughs> uh, simply because it requires so much more uh, in the way of temperature for it to operate. Yeah, it operates best between 700 and a thousand degrees centigrade. Yes, that's a. Uh, that's pretty warm. Yeah. No, it's pretty, pretty steamy. But, but steam. Oh. Now that you mention that, see, yeah. that, that it generates, uh, you know, steam as a result, and that can be used to create electricity as well. Yeah, you can use the steam to generate, to, to push turbines, or you could even use the steam, or, well, not just or, and you could use the steam to help heat uh, the facility. So mm-hmm. let's say it's in the dead of winter. Uh, the steam coming from this reaction could go back into the heating unit to try and keep the uh, the plant warm, mm-hmm. so that you don't have to gener- you don't have to burn as much energy to keep the the plant running. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, 
they're not as efficient, or they're not. It's it's not cost effective yet. The cost effectiveness of the 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 solid oxide fuel cell, um, that the target is four hundred dollars per kilowatt. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's about ten times that. It's at $4,000 per kilowatt to run one of these things. Um, that's a problem. Well, um, I'd also like to point out that uh, the solid oxide fuel cells have been in the news recently mm. in, a, in a pretty big fashion. Uh, as a matter of fact, I believe we've talked about one on this podcast not too long ago, mm-hmm. the Bloom Box. Oh, the Bloom Box. Bloom, yes. Bo- Bloom Energy's uh, Bloom Box uh, fuel cells are solid oxide fuel cells. And I, I don't know that they run exactly the same way as uh, the information in our article about that on our site. No, I, I think I they may use they, a slightly different process. They probably do, because the ones that we're talking about are mainly um, the solid oxide tends to often be used uh, come in the form of coal. Yeah. So you actually have coal running a fuel cell, which, you know, you first sit there and think like, whoa, that's weird. I thought we were going, trying to get away from fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily. In some cases, we may have to use fossil fuels to create the hydrogen or whatever the compound is that we're going to use in the fuel cell. Because hydrogen's not the only one. It's just the most popular one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but we may have to use fossil fuels in that process to generate the fuel we need to run, to, to make the fuel cells go. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other types as well. There's the alkaline fuel cell. That's the Kind that were that they that uh, the space race used quite a bit back in the sixties. Yeah, um, not really used that much anymore. Uh, it's not it's not as uh, it's really expensive. It's not as reliable as some of the other technologies. Plus, it requires pure hydrogen and oxygen. Yeah, pure hydrogen is, and oxygen is hard to get your hands on, yeah. or, or at least the pure hydrogen is. Um, there are fuel cells that can use hydrogen that's not a hundred percent pure, uh, but that also tends to take its toll on the membrane. So again, the membrane is a is a fairly delicate part of a fuel cell, and uh, if you damage that that membrane, then the fuel cell is not going to work anymore. Mm-hmm. Also, I guess we should also point out that a fuel cell, when we're talking about a fuel cell, an individual fuel cell does not generate that much power. It's when you have a bunch of fuel cells working together uh, that you can generate enough electricity. Essentially, in an array. Yeah, you, you, a fuel cell stack is usually what we call it. Uh, we being those of us in the those fuel cell industry. I was going to say. <laughs> and journalists. Um, yeah, so an individual fuel cell is like, think of it like we talked about cell processors. A cell mm-hmm. processor is just one part of a group of processors that all work together. Same sort of thing. Fuel cell is just one little uh, electricity generation uh, device that works with several others to create enough electricity to actually do something. Mm-hmm. But you also have the molten carbonate fuel cell, the phosphoric acid fuel cell, the direct methanol fuel cell. These are all variations. Um, They all basically do the same thing, but they're doing it through different ways. And some of them have different operating temperatures, uh, different parameters. Some of them are more reliable than others, but they require such a high operating temperature that you wouldn't want to use it in a car. Like, you don't want to use a solid oxide fuel cell in a car because you would die you would have to have such she- some sort of protective material to to shield you from the heat that your car would weigh so much that it wouldn't matter how much electricity you're generating because it wouldn't move anywhere. I was going to say you'd you'd have to use most of the power for your uh, air conditioning. Yeah, either the, yeah, either the <laughs> air conditioning or just getting the wheels to have enough torque to actually push that incredibly heavy vehicle forward. Mm, torque. Mm, yum. So uh, then we have the uh, ph- phosphoric acid fuel cell. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and uh, you know those those are uh, those are a little smaller. Yeah, yeah, those aren't but, those aren't as huge. But they have such a long warm up time. Yeah. So again, you, if you tried to if you used a phosphoric acid fuel cell in your car, you'd have to start warming up your car an hour before you were leaving. So that's not really that's that sort of practical. Impractical. Yeah. And the direct methanol fuel cell, uh, again, we're talking about it's not as efficient. It, it can um, use methanol, but it, since since the energy output isn't as great, it's not really seen as a viable fuel cell. Yeah, I've seen. Uh, I've seen some methanol fuel cells out and about. In fact, in, uh, when I went to the uh, CES in 2008, um, I believe it was Toshiba, if I'm not mistaken, had a uh, methanol fuel cell-powered MP3 player on display, which was pretty cool. Um, you know, it's not it's one of those things where you're like, really, seriously, I have to pour methanol on this thing? But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was so small, you know, the size of an MP3 player that, you know, I couldn't imagine it powering... You know, a building or a car. Right. Know, it's, it's much more tiny. But that's what they talk about when they talk about the possibility of using fuel cells to power, say, laptop computers and things like that. Yeah, yeah, personal electronic devices, yeah. that kind of stuff. It still, it still seems odd to me that you would, you know, flip your laptop over and pour in some methanol. And I guess it would probably be an external supply of some sort. My MP3 player has a drinking problem. <laughs> uh, I was going to talk very briefly about, about, the efficiency of a fuel cell. Uh, yes. This is kind of a complicated topic, but let's uh, fuel cell efficiency depends on a lot of different factors. Let's say that you have a fuel cell that runs on pure hydrogen, and somehow you have a reliable source of pure hydrogen, so you don't, mm-hmm. you know, there's no problem with actually getting fuel for it. So eliminating that is an issue. Yeah, uh, assuming that the a pure hydrogen fuel cell has the potential to be up to 80% efficient in generating electricity. So you get, you're get you getting 80% of the energy generated by the reaction to actually become electricity. Uh, however, now you, then you have to put it through an electric motor. So we're, we're talking about this for, for cars. Right. So... Electric motors are not 100% efficient. They don't. No. They don't convert 100% of electricity into 100% mechanical power. You lose some in heat. Yes. So let's let's say you've got a really good electric motor, and the electric motor is also 80% efficient. Uh, you're getting down to about 64% of your uh, of the power that's generated by the reactions within the fuel cell to actually do work. Mm-hmm. So you, you've got 64% efficiency. Now that's amazing compared to a gas-powered automobile. Yes, which has got about twenty percent. Exactly. Uh, the, like like Chris said, gasoline's just not that efficient uh, at generating power. Then you think about all right. Well, what about electric vehicles like uh, you know the Prius? Well, that's a that's a hybrid. That's you, true. You know, compared to about a plug-in. pure yeah, if you're talking about a pure electric vehicle, I'm sorry, I should mm-hmm. have said a pure electric vehicle. So it's just running on an electric battery. Mm-hmm. Uh, electric batteries on their own can be really efficient, like 90% efficient. Uh, when you get to the electric, electric motor part, it eventually comes down to about 72% efficiency. Now, here's where you have to go into the big picture again. Okay. How was that electricity generated that, that went into charging the battery? In a lot of cases, at least here in the United States, we're talking about fossil fuels again. Yeah, coal power or something like that. Yes. So once you factor into the, the coal power that was needed to generate the electricity that initially charged that battery, you start seeing the efficiencies drop. Now, if we assume 
that the electricity was generated through some sort of renewable source, like let's say uh, a hydroelectric facility. Mm-hmm. So no fossil fuels went into producing this. Even then, when you're looking at the efficiencies, it goes to around, uh, it's in the mid 60%, so 65%, 66%, something like that efficiency. So it's just a little bit more efficient than a hydrogen car that's running on pure hydrogen. Right. And again, if we look at that with the electric battery, we kind of had to look at it with the hydrogen as well. Like, where did we get, how did we get that pure hydrogen? Once you factor that in, this is why it gets so complicated. You're like, well, in the big picture, does it make sense to move to hydrogen? Mm-hmm. So we first have to answer that question. Does it make sense to move to a hydrogen-based uh, uh, fleet of automobiles? Um, will that from an energy standpoint makes sense or will we just be switching one inefficient method for ultimately another one that's that's one question there's yeah. another one though that's okay. even bigger all right how do we build the infrastructure to support hydrogen powered vehicles yes this is a this is one of the problems that uh, organizations like Better Place, which is a, a car manufacturer, or not a car manufacturer, um, they are a, a systems manufacturer that's trying to work out a way to make uh, electric vehicles possible. Mm-hmm. And um, they are basically have been adapting vehicles to run on as plug-ins, uh, which is all well and good. But say what happens if you haven't had a chance to get your car charged up? Um, you know, and, and you are running out of electricity. We're talking about the possibility of stations where you could go and swap out your battery for another, you know, or battery array for another one. And, uh, you know, that would be a convenient thing if that already existed. But it's the same thing. Any kind of alternative fuel, uh, to what we've got now, whether it's, you know, needing more hydrogen for your fuel cell powered vehicle or requiring more batteries for an electric vehicle. Um, there just simply aren't, you know, power stations on every corner like there are with gasoline vehicles. You're going to have to either strike deals with those companies to do that or start your own. Yeah, and build that's new ones. really expensive. Yeah, we're talking billions and billions of dollars, or as Carl Sagan would have you, billions and billions of dollars. You really need the the jacket with the patches on the elbows for that. Yeah, it's a little too warm for that. At any rate, uh, yeah, it costs. It's going to cost a lot of money to build out that infrastructure. Um, everything from the actual facilities where they sell the hydrogen to all the vehicles that are going to be necessary to transport the hydrogen to the facilities that are there to generate the hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not a small task, and uh, the hydrogen fuel initiative. Just founded back in 2003. When was it lost? In? Um, it it is it's working to try and find a way of making fuel cell vehicles practical and cost effective by 2020. Hmm. I think that's incredibly ambitious, especially when you consider that their budget is pretty low in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Now, it would be great if we could switch to a hydrogen-based. Uh, uh, transportation system because then you're looking at you no longer dependent upon on oil mm-hmm. and because so much of our oil comes from foreign nations that may or may not have very friendly relationships with us um, it means that we're no longer pouring money into into governments or into countries that we may think ultimately could use that money to do things that are uh, not within our country's best interests 
Right. That's a good way of putting it. I'm trying to like dance lightly around the whole thing. But, uh, but hydrogen we could produce right here at home. Yeah. If we found a, a, an efficient way of doing it so it didn't, you know, so it no longer costs more to create the fuel than the fuel itself would, would, uh, benefit us. Right. So that's how fuel cells work. That's kind of the, the whole detail. Did you have anything else to add before I go into? No, I mean, there's, there's a lot more to it in yeah. terms of the, the depth of the, uh, the reaction and how all of that works. But, uh, no, I think we did a pretty good job of, of hitting the high points of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is a huge challenge and we may be one that we overcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little early to say, but before, uh, we get there, I'm afraid we're going to have to answer a little listener mail. This listener mail comes from Megan from Boston, Massachusetts. And Megan says, I love the podcast. Keep them coming. Could you please dedicate one podcast to Internet Protocol version 6? I don't fully understand why IPv4 is running out of addresses and how the switch to IPv6 will be implemented. I think that would make a great and informative podcast, and I'm sure there are other listeners interested in this topic. Thanks. Well, it's not really um, a big enough topic to do a full podcast on necessarily, but we can give you a real quick rundown on what the issue is. Yeah, um, the issue is basically your IP-enabled cell phone and your laptop and your you know tablet, iPod and yeah. your tablet and your three desktop computers and your roommates gear and the people downstairs and everyone else in the building and everyone else in the city and the county and the state and the country and the world. There's a lot, a lot of of, of devices that everyone has now that use their own individual IP address. And as, as robust as IPv4 was, it just is going to run out of addresses with all these new devices coming onto the network and uh, not retiring enough of them to make room. Yeah, see, IPv4 is a 32-bit address system. System. Yes. And that when you translate 32-bit into actual integers, uh, at most you would have 4,294,967,296 addresses. Once those addresses are gone, that's that's it. If you're on an IP4 system, you cannot add any more devices to the Internet because each device has to have its own unique IP address. That's the way the Internet works. If you don't have your own unique address, you cannot send and receive information because the information wouldn't know where to go. Yep. yep. So I, w- I was going to say, too, uh, sorry to interrupt, no, go that, ahead. Uh, that one nice thing about the, the Switch is that it's uh, they coexist. Yeah. Yeah, the IPv6 uses 128-bit addresses mm-hmm. as opposed to 32-bit, which gives you about 3.4. Okay, take a 3, put a okay. con- you know, put a 4 behind it. Then behind the 4 put 38 zeros. Okay. That's how many addresses. So many that we would not run out in the foreseeable future. It would take Everyone having everything they own be internet connected, and even then, we still would have plenty of addresses left over. So, uh, and yes, like you said, the two systems can coincide. Um, the issue about implementation is that that's a an organization by organization process. It's not like there's going to flip a switch and everything switches from IP4 to IP6. And there's, as far as I know, no official timetable for migration. So people are sort of taking their time to do that. Although some people have already gone ahead and uh, upgraded their systems to run on IPv6. So, um, and I think pretty much all the the mainstream operating systems, uh, you know, Windows, Mac, and Linux will accept 
either. Um, yeah. So it's it's not really an issue of of having the infrastructure in place. It's just a matter of you know doing it. Yeah, getting off your butt and switching over. Yeah. Um, and when I'm saying getting off your butt, I mean that as the organizations that are all running the servers that are uh, they the kind of the the backbone of the internet. Right. Um, and so we're kind of at their mercy whenever they get around to switching it over. And some organizations don't prioritize it very highly. So it may be a while before everyone's over to IP6. Now, whether we get to the point where we run out of addresses before uh, we before that happens, that remains to be seen. Chris is skeptical. I'm scared. <laughs> well, they've been they've been talking about it for quite some time now, years, yes. several years now. So uh, it's not like this is a new problem, um, and thankfully, it's not something like the Y two K problem where we have a a solid deadline that we have to hit. Otherwise, things might go kablooey. So no, this is more of a we don't know when it'll happen. It'll all depend on how many uh, uh, devices get connected to the internet. Right. So that's much more comforting. Anyway, Megan, thanks for the listener mail. If any if you have anything you'd like to write to us, you can send an email to techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And we will talk to you again really soon. If you're a Tech Stuff fan, be sure to check us out on Twitter. Tech Stuff HSW is our handle. And you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash techstuffhsw. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. It's brand new, season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.